Next month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And today on Savvy Citizen, we're talking with Tara Joyner, the Executive Director of the Hope United Survivor Network. We're also speaking with Molly Weekland, who's the Marketing and Events Coordinator for Hope United. And we're also speaking with Gina, who's a survivor of domestic violence. All three of them are gonna be sharing their stories with us today, talking about the county's resources and what you need to know and how you can help. Good afternoon, welcome to Savvy Citizen. I'm joined by a number of folks today. I'm joined with uh, Tara Joyner and Molly Weekland. They're both with Hope United Survivor Network, which um, if you've been around Gaston County for, for a while, that may be kind of a new name to you because um, Hope United is, is kind of a reorganization of survivor services. And, and Tara or Molly, maybe you guys can talk a little bit about kind of what you guys have done with that organization over the past year or so. Yeah, absolutely. So Hope United Survivor Network um, essentially began out of the Family Justice Center uh, work in Gaston County. So the Family Justice Center um, was funded and opened a year ago, April. And um, with the opening, our, um, our goal is to be the one-stop shop for survivors of domestic violence, sex assault, human trafficking, and elder abuse. In um, June of that year, with the restructure, the um, Family Justice Center and or now called Hope United Survivor Network absorbed the Kathy Mayberry Kloniger Center and the Lighthouse, which is the Child Advocacy Center for Gaston County. So together, um, we serve all survivors of child abuse and all the way to elder abuse. So we are incorporating the Family Justice Center model where we strive to be the place where victims can come and get the services instead of having the victims or the survivors have to go to all the different places across the community to um, get the services that they need and that they deserve. So that was a year ago. We opened in uh, COVID, which um, <laughs> was April 13th. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, so with that comes a whole other um, line of uh, operations. But that's, that's kind of like the basics for now. What has it been like trying to do this? through COVID? Because obviously, I mean, there were survivor services that existed just without Hope United before we got into COVID, but what's it been like trying to get the word out, trying to continue to provide these services with, with some of the barriers that COVID's provided? Sure. So I kind of have this take on COVID that probably is not very common, but we originally intended to operate as a drop-in center. Um, we were going to open our doors and people could come in crisis or mm -hmm. soon after the crisis. And um, that's how we were going to, that's how we were going to do our service delivery. And we were going to have all these partners on staff and it was going to be great. COVID being the non-negotiable here, yep. we had to switch our operations and therefore we had to do everything remotely. So um, we were able to do that. We shifted the way in which we do our service delivery and in our first year, we reached over a thousand residents of Gaston County and the surrounding area. I have to think that if we if we kept our remaining um, operational plan as being a drop in with COVID, I I don't think that we would have reached that many survivors. Um, so that's kind of the silver lining for us as far as getting the word out. Molly Weekland has been fantastic and doing that work. Um, and it's been a lot of social media. It's been a lot of um, visits mm -hmm. to these partnering agencies or these places where we really think that survivors could um, benefit from our work. 
just on a smaller scale. Right. So um, meeting people in smaller groups and kind of working a little bit harder than I think we would have had to have worked for COVID. So that's kind of like the twitch, catch-22. So Molly, let me ask you that. I mean, that, does that get to uh, working with law enforcement, churches, um, just anybody that provides kind of support services and, and making sure that they know who you guys are, how to get in touch, and making those connections so that when people do that process of reaching out, they know right where to go? Yeah, it's been really tough because these groups that we were trying to reach out to are not meeting. And so sure. they certainly aren't inviting me to the meetings they aren't having. So we've had to get creative with how we get in front of these groups and really go virtual. And for a lot of the community organizations that we have worked with, virtual is not their preferred method. Oh yeah. So it's been really difficult, but everybody's been very open to learning about this because we serve such a wide range of people, really from birth until, you know, the elder population with um, some of our elder abuse programs. So their interest has peaked, and that's been the saving grace because they're like, huh, what is this? But but don't come here. Just don't come here. Right. right. So you guys have um, counselors at your locations, right? So were you doing a lot of the, like like medicine does with telehealth, were you doing a lot of virtual counseling during Yeah, COVID? so... So the way that this kind of, the model that this kind of is, is that we are the linkage, we're the, we're the source that allows the survivor not to have to go through all the different stops and make all the different individual connections. So for our counseling, um, for those that want counseling, we do have a clinician. That clinician is able to um, join in on the intake or make that warm, termed warm handoff um, from starting our services to actually starting that individual uh, clinical behavioral health component of what it is that they're requesting. Um, We also have the process set up with Contegra Health. So what is really great about that that kind of link is once Contegra Health is kind of presented to the survivor, they are also presented with the opportunity for medical, dental, and vision. Um, And they are also able to get a medical evaluation that assesses the potential for mental health-related medication. And in that collaboration, they are essentially able to, well, together, we're essentially able to treat the survivor as a whole, which is very important. Sometimes the medical care is really neglected for many reasons, um, and they're able to get in and kind of get that patient established. So that's that's the way our mental health component kind of works. That's great. It sounds like a holistic approach Mm -hmm. to well-being rather than just, you know, the counseling or trauma side and and then the medical side. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're fortunate enough to be joined today by Gina, who is a domestic violence survivor. And Gina and I were talking before we, we started the podcast episode. And I know you had mentioned that you had previously reached out to 911 in the city that you lived in before you had come to Gaston County. And the experience you had with that left a lot to be desired, I think. Correct. So the very first time, um, my son was two, and uh, we were being threatened by his dad, who was my husband at the time, and so I did call the police, and they came and said, basically, you must have done something to make him this angry. And so I was a little upset about that, and they said some other things, but basically I thought, well, if my own police aren't going to take care of me, then who's going to take care of me? So I never called after that. 
And that, so then we were in that state for uh, several more years. And then when we moved here, we had a couple more events that occurred. And I finally got the nerve to call in this county. And they came immediately, and they were wonderful. And it wasn't even for a domestic violence-related issue. It was for another issue with his mental health. Okay. And um, they did a great job. And I thought, okay, well, maybe it's not that bad. It's not the same everywhere because, you know, I was so nervous to call again. Um, so then when I ended up having to call for um, or actually had to go through with having him removed from the home, there was a lot of stuff that led up to that and me calling the shelter and me getting an attorney and getting legal aid and an advocate. And so that just changed everything and changed the ball game. And I was able to get us out of there. And the police were fantastic when they mm-hmm. came and they just really um, – just the whole attitude and how to protect me and the kids, and it was much different. So going through that process, obviously, you know, being able to, to reach out here, having a better experience at the police um, was one thing, but then actually having to go through kind of the, the divorce with your husband and, and some of the legal proceedings in terms of the charges, that was, that was its own kind of nightmare in a sense, but you had you did get some help from from people that kind of came alongside of you. Correct. So um, I went, you know, I got a lawyer and just got some guidance. And But at the same time where I worked, there was a poster for the shelter, which had a different name at the time, on the bathroom wall. Mm. And so I thought, okay, I might need that if I'm going to go through with this. And so I kept that with me. And... Not the whole poster, but <laughs> <laughs> I took that ripped the poster Stick off the it in wall. The purse. Yeah, no, we have a lot better things for that now. Molly, <laughs> Molly took care of all that. We don't need to put a whole poster in our bag, but um, so I just kept going with that. But anyway, so I um, did file for a protective order, and when I went to the uh, courthouse, as soon as I told them while I was what I was there for, they immediately said, "Go sit in the hallway," and there was an advocate next to me sitting there yeah. before I even could barely start the first line of my paperwork. Mm. And that was Im- that was instrumental. I don't think I, w- I would have finished the paperwork. I don't even know if I would have stayed. And she was fantastic, and she walked me through the whole thing, and then I had to go and stand in front of the judge. We didn't have this nice virtual. It would have been nice to have a virtual option. Oh, sure. <laughs> but I didn't sure. have that luxury back then. And it's actually five years this year wow. um, that I'm out of that. And so... Um, but, yeah, the advocate was instrumental and uh, came to my court dates with me, called me and annoyed me a little bit at home. Have you done <laughs> this? No, I have not. Do it now. Have you done this? No, I have not. Do it now. You know, um, here's some of the questions they're going to ask you, you know, just to give me a heads up so I wasn't going in cold to everything. It was so helpful. Mm. When we were talking before, somebody that you'd interacted with had made the comment that you're not supposed to know how this system works. So, I mean, to expect anybody that's going through this and not only dealing with the trauma, but then trying to navigate all the different hoops that you've got to jump through in the legal system. Right. So um, during that initial 10 days and part of that protective order, there were he had made some phone calls and had written some letters and had a present for me. And so uh, per, I was called, and they said, hey, we have the stuff here from him. Do you want to come and get it? And, of course, in my head, I'm thinking, heck no, I don't want to go and get it. I don't care. But then I thought, yeah, I probably should because it might be something I might need later. Mm-hmm. And it was. It was a 
nine-page letter that basically outlined mm -hmm. why he had done everything he had done and, uh, and even a present and everything. And so I talked to my attorney, and I said, you know, what do I need to do with this? And so he read it, and he's like, it appears that he has, you know, gone against the protective order. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, you know what? Just go to the magistrate's office and talk to them, show them what you have, and see how they could advise you. And I'm like, okay, I've never been to a magistrate's office before, but I'll try anything new. I'm in the middle of this. And so I brought all of it, and, you know, I said, I really don't know what to do with this. I don't know if he's done anything wrong. I don't know what the rules are. And that's kind of how that conversation started. And she's like, you're not supposed to know what the rules are because you're not supposed to have to go through any of this. Mm -hmm. And so they looked over all that, and he ended up getting arrested for a second time. So, you know, just the, having the guidance and just really listening that was really helpful. So you touched on that nobody should know how to do that, how to go through this process, but one of the things that Gina has continued to do is go, is come to our support group mm -hmm. at the shelter and help women who are still in uh, relationships that are abusive kind of navigate that. So um, along with shelter staff, Gina has given them an opportunity to, to see a a peek into what leaving would look like so that's pretty amazing the, the shelter's been great the support group has been good too because it also reminds you of a lot of people might use it and then leave when they're done but i've continued to go of course that was bc before covid yeah. <laughs> so i mean i've continued to go and i like it because it also helps me remember what i was going through because it's easy and of course survivors historically were very good sweepers under the rug and I'm a master at that. So I thought, you know, you don't really want to, you don't want to remember all the terrible things, but you also want to be able to be somebody for somebody maybe later on who might need you, because why else would you have to go through something like that? I think I'm supposed to be, you know, somebody who could give somebody else hope at some mm. point. So, um, and I think that's helped too, because also I'm not, I don't fall into the exact mold sometimes as far as, I was very blessed. I didn't have to give anything up. I didn't lose my job. I didn't lose my house. I didn't um, lose, you know, my kids were still in school. I didn't have to remove them. It was a very difficult process, but we were still able to get through it. And also, I think in the group, what they like, too, is the fact that I can actually talk to him now, and we are parents. Mm. So we don't live in the same state, and he is in a, he's mar remarried but the fact that we actually can still take care of the kids who are older they're um, in college but um, if there's a financial issue I can call him if there's a health issue with one of them we can talk about it and still make parental decisions so mm -hmm. I think that's surprising for a lot of people when they're early on in it thinking that's never something that I would be able to do and it is something we were able to just get through and that's, uh, you talked a, a little bit about this, like knowing that your case is going to be different than everybody else's by a little bit. Um, but it, it does, I would think, provide that sense of hope for, for others that they can come out on the other side of this. And I mean, I, I hate to use the word normal because I don't feel like everything's ever gets back to normal, but like whatever a new normal would look like after such a you know, monumental event in your life. Yeah, I think it's important, too, to show your kids that, that something like that's possible, too. I think, too, a lot of times we get in our own heads and we forget about the fact that we have little people 
And that was another reason for waiting as long as I did not saying that that's right. But I waited because I didn't want my kids to have to go through all that, being shoved all over the place. It was very challenging for the kids. So that was helpful. And then also to be able to give back and to, you know, for the fundraising, we've done a lot of stuff like that. I've tried, it seems like where I work, people have found out little by little that I have involvement. Um, I don't have a big sandwich board on my back, but I mean, they're like, <laughs> they have found out, but I, I will get emails or calls, people saying, hey, um, I know somebody who's having issues. What do you recommend? And, you know, I've got cards from the shelter, or I can give them a phone number. Um, and so just to have that person who's kind of in your own workplace and have that connection, that's also been helpful, I think, for other people. So you say, you know, you've had, you had to think about your kids and, and a lot of other factors before you, you know, actually decided to leave. What would you, and this may be a question for any of you, what would you say to someone who's, who has somebody in this situation who they continue to say, just leave, just leave? to their, it's maybe a family member or whatever, and, you know, they want to be supportive, but they say just leave. Um, and you realize it's not that easy. Yeah, it's definitely not that easy. You have to plan. You definitely have to plan. Um, I remember my first meeting with the attorney that I had, and he asked me questions, and I didn't know the answers to any of them. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about my finances. I didn't know anything about our house or our bills because I didn't do any of that stuff. Now I know because we joke and say that the wheel was made after me. <laughs> <laughs> I fit in all those little spots. But, um, but I had no idea. And so he gave me basically three choices. And he said, you can continue to do the same thing that you're doing and just live like you have been for all these years. Or you can leave because you know that you're really in a desperate situation and you need to get out as fast as you can. Or you can start planning mm. and start educating yourself and see what's going on in your household. You know, what do you need to do to be able to take care of the kids and know that if you make that decision, you have to make it so that you, he didn't say it just like this, but basically so you know that you're making that decision and you're going to stick with it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I did. I planned. And so I would tell people if you, you know, if you're definitely in a dire situation, you have to get out as fast as you can. But in my situation, it was less physical and more of the emotional and verbal, and um, I did have that opportunity to plan, mm-hmm. and I did. And just to know that you got to get your ducks in a row if you can possibly do that and don't make rash decisions and have your contacts, you know, know. I think the you guys do some safety planning as well, right, with um, potential clients? Yes, we do. We do safety planning with our clients. Um, the one thing I do want to kind of add to that is that um, our domestic violence survivors or domestic violence survivors in general, um, they know their their partner the best. So um, when you are on the outside looking in, it's very easy to kind of think like, oh, my God, why don't they just leave? Like, I would never stay in this situation. Um, and until you're in that situation – I don't know that that's a fair judgment of others. We, um, in working with our survivors, it is not, we are going to work with you contingent on you leaving him or her. Um, Our services are for anybody that is um, a domestic violence survivor, either from their childhood or to currently. Fresh marks and bruises are not needed. Uh, We don't need to verify your story. Um, We don't question if, if, you know, um, is all of this true and accurate? Um, so I guess I'm kind of saying two things in that we are excited to walk along somebody through this journey. 
But we also, for those of you who know someone in this situation, and it is one in four women, pushing that person to leave could cause much more harm than it could do good. And um, when a person tries to leave a domestic violence relationship, that is the the most dangerous time. Getting a domestic violence protection order against their abuser increases uh, the risk for that for that survivor. So yes, there is a lot of planning that goes into it um, and actually being a support and um, assisting in the planning would serve that survivor much better than being the one that pressures them to leave. Right, and also, you know, um, when you're offering support but then the person goes back, they may have left and gone back. Sure. A lot of family members get frustrated Absolutely. With that. So right. it's continuing to be that support regardless of where they are. In Absolutely. Their, their yep. And it's not uncommon, um, and maybe once you get out on your own, you realize that you think that you can't do this. Um, oftentimes, people do return to the relationship, and that's okay because it takes an average of seven times in trying to leave before somebody actually leaves. So again, it's not, I'm so angry with you for going back. It's, what do you need this time when you're ready to leave? The one in four number is just is jumping out at me that's yeah. that's alarming that it's that high mm-hmm. I was having a conversation the other day with somebody and they said well I don't know anybody that that has been impacted by domestic violence and I said yes you do you just Think, don't know it yeah you just don't know it so it's on it's it's one in four women are impacted and I believe it's uh, like one in 13 men mm. um so if you just line up your family and extensive family members you know it's it's there but um there's so much shame and guilt associated with it that uh, it's clearly not a topic that's talked about often. I always say that re- looking at the power and control wheel, I think you mentioned that earlier, just looking at that wheel will help you mm-hmm. see some of the things that are going on that you may have not considered abuse before and then, or that you see happening in, you know, with family members or friends or whatever, um, and that kind of helps you realize. Yeah, absolutely. There it was probably um, one in four, or oh, it's definitely one in four. Yeah, yeah. there was, um, and our work around domestic violence, um, there is, a speaker that I listen to all the time, every chance I can get, and his name is Mark Wen, and he is um, fantastic. But anyhow, he is retired law enforcement, and he says domestic violence is not an incident. It's a course of conduct. Mm. So um, that always just kind of struck with me. You know, we respond to the incident of domestic violence, but really, back to that power and control, it's the things that exist, and the domestic violence incident is the things that you see. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of opportunity here, so I'm really excited. So that's specifically the services that the Kathy Mabry Cloninger Shelter offers, correct? Is domestic violence related? Um, mm-hmm. Does that cross over into some of your other programs or yeah. are those totally separate? No, absolutely. So it all kind of interconnects. Um, to, ha- to go into the domestic violence shelter, you have to be in imminent danger. Um, and sometimes we will get callers where they tell us of things that have happened, but they are not in imminent danger. So we make connections with them through other uh, avenues. With the with this overarching department, we are able to kind of maintain that connectivity of care. So even though they're not um, an appropriate, they're not appropriate for the shelter. They are always appropriate for our services. We are so fortunate. We have three contracted attorneys, um, and they are able to provide legal representation for the survivor to obtain their domestic violence protection order. Um, they are also able to handle child custodies, mm. um, which is a really 
a very popular service. Um, we have a full-time child care provider. So if we have someone who says, I need to go and I would love to go do these all these things, but I can't go do them. I've got children. We can help um, provide the child care. So whether it is in the courtroom where she can come and sit with our survivor with her Kindle and coloring book and, and occupy that child or um, stay in our courthouse office. And we also have a transporter. So really working at removing all the barriers that we see to help the survivors get the services that they need. Our community navigator essentially listens to their story and says, okay, here's what we can offer. And here is also what I've heard that you might not know is available. And all these services are survivor driven. So of course, I want everybody to walk away being free from a relationship with domestic violence in their own house having being fully employed and that not that may not be what they want and that's okay because sometimes what they want might be to stay in the relationship but just receive counseling and we'll do that so and a case manager we also have that so she's a hustler she is she is the hands and feet so if there's a food need if there is a need for clothing furniture Anything that any of those tangible items, if we can get a, if we can get a hold of them, we will absolutely get a hold of them. Um, so all that kind of like interconnects, for sure. And, and the residents that are leaving the shelter, you know, that ongoing need for support and services and assistance. You know, we can offer financial assistance. So that's been very beneficial, especially in this time of um, not being able to find uh, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Housing is very expensive. Yeah, it's getting mm. more expensive by the day. It too. is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Speaking of, you know, um, your case manager that kind of hustles to find yeah. the needs, do you guys have um, any volunteer opportunities or um, any, like, clothing drives or fundraising events or anything of that, that nature that you would want to talk about? Sure. Um, I'll let Molly take the current um, opportunities, and then if I can, we'll circle back around to where um, I would love to be post-COVID. Sure. Okay. So we're talking with a couple folks from our Hope United Survivor Network, Tara Joyner, who's the executive director, Molly Weekland, who's the events and marketing coordinator. And then we're also talking with Gina, who is a domestic violence survivor. So uh, Tara had mentioned needs of the survivors and the case manager kind of hustling to, to make sure those needs are met. But does, this, do, does Hope United offer um, any type of volunteer opportunities for people to kind of fill those needs or you know, clothing drives or fundraising events that, that you know, listeners could participate in? Yes, we do. Um, department-wide, we have the Family Justice Center, the shelter, and the CAC, which all three have very unique needs and very unique volunteer opportunities. So we'll start uh, with the CAC. So um, one of the things that they um, need volunteers for are um, tie-dyeing T-shirts as crazy as it sounds, um, when a child has a medical exam, instead of wearing a gown, they can wear a tie-dyed t-shirt, and that's given to them by the CAC. And so with COVID restrictions, what we have done is sent volunteers home with a pack of white t-shirts and a tie-dye kit, and then they can do it in the safety of their home and drop it off um, at the CAC. Every child that comes through the CAC gets a stuffed animal big, small, some, they get to pick it out, whatever they want. So we're always in need of stuffed animals at the CAC. So if someone wanted to donate, um, right now we're doing new with tags, but uh, post-COVID, just stuffed animals in general. 
at the shelter, we have Domestic Violence Awareness Month coming up in October. So we're going to have, we'll be pushing out several opportunities for people to get involved, where they can get more information. Um, one of the things that we have really needed volunteers for during COVID is just getting the word out because we know that people were at home, potentially with an abuser, and they may not know that we're still open and here or know where to co- how to contact us. Um, Hope United implemented a way to contact via email instead of making a phone call. So they can initiate services uh, through Hope United, and then if it's shelter that they need or CAC services or whatever the case may be, they can initiate that conversation through email because a phone call is hard to do if you are at home with your abuser. The shelter is always in need of items. We have, uh, I think we have housed like 147 women last year and about 132 children. Wow. So our needs range from baby, baby, infant diapers to um, we have teenage boys that are wearing, you know, grown men clothing that people think, oh, I don't need to take this to the shelter, but we absolutely still have a need for that. Sure. We try to bridge the gap as far as items that people need as they're transitioning out of the shelter. So, you know, nobody comes into the shelter with pots and pans in their bags, but Mm. those are definitely things that they will need as they transition into independent living. So we put out a wish list every month either on our Facebook, on our website, and also through our newsletter. So if anybody wanted to kind of check out what our needs are, because they change often, if we definitely seasonally, right now we need notebooks and pencils, but next month it might be jackets. So they can check out our website, www.hopeunitedgaston.com, and also um, on Facebook at Hope United and uh, the shelter of Gaston County. That tie-dye thing sounds awesome. I have friends that do that for fun all the time, so I might sign them up for that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They also, the other program that the CAC does, which I think is really unique and cool, is um, they have a program where you can um, sponsor the graduation of a child through trauma therapy. Mm -hmm. So it's a party, essentially, which who doesn't love to plan a party, especially after we've been at home for 18 months, right? Um, but you can sponsor a party for a child as they graduate from count the counseling services that they provide there, um, and also a program where they can redecorate the room where the abuse happened. So if it's mm. maybe the bedroom or the living room, then you can sponsor the redecoration and help them pick out if they love Spider-Man. You could do a Spider-Man, you know, bedspread and wall decor, um, and just kind of get to know that um, that child survivor through their decor, essentially. That's amazing. Yeah, it's and really cool. And those t- and for those two programs, um, those are called uh, Celebrate is the, the party um, post-completion of um, their, their mental health services. Kara's Closet <laughs> is the um, program that allows for the redecoration of where the physical abuse, uh, where, where, the, where the abuse took place physically in the home. Um, and those we accept donations for. So if um, shopping is not your thing for all these, you know, all the stuff that might be a new Spider-Man bedroom, um, then we accept donations and we will take that child's uh, wish list and purchase the items. I've heard of maybe people have who are combining households or already have everything they need. They get married. They do a red. Have you ever had anybody do a donate their wedding registry to one of these programs? We did. You did? Mm-hmm. That would be something that I would we like did. to do. We had, um, yes, we had someone 
who um, is very invested in the work of the Children's Advocacy Center, and uh, he did not need for much. So instead of getting his wedding gifts, he um, took the donations and provided them to the CAC, which was just awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Because you don't need a third toaster. No. You know. <laughs> yeah, no. So the, this has been an exciting year for you guys. You've got a new website that's been launching. I know Molly kind of gave a little bit of plug there for it, but the, the groundbreaking for the CAC facility, you've got mm-hmm. um, work that just started um, just a couple weeks ago. That's something that not every county has that same setup as you right. guys do for those services for children. Absolutely. We're really excited about the new location and the new um, the new space for the Children's Advocacy Center. A lot of time and attention has went into what would make it the most warm environment for a child in their healing journey. And um, yes, not every county has a Children's Advocacy Center. And some really fantastic news um, that we just got recently. Heather Kaufman, she is a program manager over the Children's Advocacy Center. It is her passion. It is it is what she eats, sleeps, and breathes, is a work around children and their victimization and their recovery. Um, we just recently had our reaccreditation visit from um, the national, you know, the National Children's Advocacy Center, and we did receive um, our reaccreditation. Mm. Um, so that's really fantastic. And I will say, and I've said it before, you know, I I would back to statistics because I really, you know, kind of a, a nerd like that. Mm-hmm. Um, statistically, it's we one like in, nerds. Here I, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's one in ten children that are a victim of <sighs> sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, it's one in ten children, and um, it is uh, 90, 93 or 97% of those children who are victimized know their abuser. Mm-hmm. Um, that is how abusers are successful. So they gain trust, um, and um, they, they keep secrets, and it's a very uh, horrible betrayal. And uh, I, I can't imagine. Um, but to that point... If your child is a victim of sexual abuse, I would, if my child was a victim of sexual abuse, I would want the CAC staff that we have here in Gaston County. Mm. Um, their partnership with law enforcement and the district attorney's office, social services, mental health, um, it's fantastic. And it's not something that, you know, you ever want to be, um, it's not a situation you ever want to be in. But um, the team that we have here in Gaston County is amazing. I know Janet had worked in social services for a while, and I want to kind of pose this question to each of you, because, um, Janet, I know that you're still kind of volunteering and, and going to, to some of the, the, the group sessions. How do you deal with this mentally and emotionally? Because so much of what you do either on a volunteer basis or, or for your job is really emotionally taxing. Sure. Um, how, how do you kind of... Is it, is it a sense of compartmentalizing it, or, or, or what do you do to keep yourself from kind of going nuts? Because <laughs> I would think that it can be overwhelming at times. Well, for me, I, um, I definitely st- had done therapy. Um, I still periodically will go as a check-in because I think it's important. Um, I also made sure that both of my kids had counseling, mm. um, a different counselor than mine. I just thought that that was important, that they were – that their counselor was different so that they didn't necessarily have any conflict there um, because I wanted them to be able to say what they needed to say. And um, 
But that was imperative. And in finding a good support system, which is hard, because I did not tell anybody. No one knew. Mm -hmm. And my situation was about 12 years out of the 18 I was married. Wow. So I did not tell anybody. Um, And I don't recommend that. But because I didn't really have anybody in the area, the last thing for me that I wanted to do was tell my family that was hundreds Mm -hmm. of miles away. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, a support system is also imperative and I have a fantastic one now whether it's work related people or you know neighbors and they don't have to know your whole story but it is also nice to let them have them know just a tad of it mm-hmm. um, and then friends yeah. which I have now more than I did then I did not have any friends uh, when I was going through mm-hmm. all this uh, very few and the ones I did have had no clue what I was going through so uh, counseling in a support system has been what's helped me the most. And also giving back and seeing that it really wasn't just me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the only one. And a lot of the ladies in group mm-hmm. will also say, it's so nice to talk to someone who gets it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have that statement a lot. Mm-hmm. I'll have to agree with that. Um, having coworkers that get it um, was a huge. I couldn't have done it without people who understood, you know. But... Yeah, that that support system was everything. For me, yes, it's it's very challenging, and the stories are terrible. For me, what gets me through is the opportunity to find the gaps in services. We have a fantastic community. You mentioned law enforcement earlier. Our law enforcement partners are awesome. Knowing that there are always opportunities that we can do better to best serve the survivors is kind of what keeps me going is the reframing of those horrible situations. Okay, so what can we do now? Yeah. And what can we do better? That's that's really just about the saving grace. I will say we kept a journal of uh, small wins. Yeah. Um, we, and it sounds crazy, but we had to because it is really easy to think that nothing will work out. And But you have something to look back to say, oh, actually, a lot of things went well. You know? That makes so that sense. Was helpful. I kind of try to do that now, too, like just in my personal life. And it's actually really nice to go back like a year later and look at everything. Mm. I think, too, Tara, being our director, has really pushed the idea of hope. So Mm -hmm. every single day while we're hearing these stories that we wish we didn't have to hear, we're also providing hope. And Mm. that's not something that I could necessarily do in another job. And so Tara is... uh, from the School of Hope, and she <laughs> she gives it. I mean, that is uh, all. All roads lead to we can give this person hope. Who else can say that? So, and because she doesn't care. I mean, like she said, it. We're not going to verify a story. None of that matters. We're just here to be the support for a survivor and provide them hope, and and then figure out how we can give them more hope and where the gaps are, and and so that's keeps me going. I know, Tara, you had mentioned a little bit earlier that you, you had kind of some plans for, for post-COVID for things that you, you know, wanted to be able to do um, once we're not all you know, wearing masks and, yeah. and <laughs> dealing with Delta variants and whatever other variants are going to come barreling down at us. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm so bright and cherry. <laughs> so Tara's hope. Yeah, really. Yeah, Tara's hope and we've got uh, Remington buzzkill over here. <laughs> So I do think, um, I, you know, maybe, maybe it's my hope or being naive, um, but I do think that we are community-wide. I think we're in a really good position to take a look at what we're doing and make those changes. 
Um, I think that we uh, have service providers um, that are open to doing things differently because we've had to. Um, but now, you know, how can we do them better? So, so yes, I think this is a really good time for domestic violence, sexual assault services, uh, crimes against children, all those things um, that we kind of work in. As far as post-COVID, um, we are, you know, the original plan being a drop-in service. So um, when our doors are, let me take that back. Our doors are open now. Right. To get the best amount um, or to get the most out of the time there is to call ahead and let us have every person there. So when they come in, when you come in, you have we can maximize on your time. Um, I will say that we are also starting these services on the phone call. So to Molly's point, sometimes making a phone call is not easy to do or not safe. Uh, what we have found um, is that starting the services through the phone have been ha- have been very useful. Um, saying all that, post-COVID, when we are in the building and whether there is appointment scheduled or um, we are in a place where people are just able to drop in and learn some more and start that process, I would love to have uh, committed volunteers who understand domestic violence and that um, it doesn't matter how many times we see them, it doesn't matter how many times we leave, it doesn't matter how many times they've attempted to, bo- to file a domestic violence protection order and dropped it because course that's common that they are always met with somebody who has a smile on their face and that they are always met with somebody who is happy to see them that they can tell the person who is here here's what you can expect you're going to meet with our community navigator here's how much time and let me give you a quick tour because I cannot I cannot imagine what they go through to even get the courage to leave but let alone what they have to go through once they decide to leave or, or they don't decide to leave. So that's kind of one of my long-term plans is just having those volunteers who want to give back in that kind of capacity. My other long-term plan would to have volunteers that are at the courthouse. Um, the court process is incredibly overwhelming, and um, I don't know, to Gina's point, I don't know that I could do it. Mm. Um, I, I think I would be incredibly scared. I think that I might be untrustworthy. Um, just because I don't know the outcome. I don't know what's going to happen next. So to have somebody there to be with our survivors um, and just, I don't know, hold hold their hand, give them a tissue, tell them where the soda machines are, you know, who knows, but just mm-hmm. somebody that's there through that entire process. Um, because I think that having that support is so incredibly important um, and knowing the next best step to help them get through the process. Anything else uh, as we get ready to wrap up that that you wanted to talk about um, that I didn't mention or just something that kind of popped in your head as we were having this conversation that that you wanted to talk about? I don't know. I kind of do want to just touch on what you touched on with the having someone even there in court with Mm -hmm. you. Because even with group, we had a couple ladies who didn't have the support from their family um, or didn't necessarily want it for whatever reason. And... Some of us went as just we sat in the back of the room and their um, abuser did not know that we were with them, but it just gave her that because she had probably tried at least four or five times, Mm -hmm. at least that I know of. um, And just having us in the back was helpful to Mm -hmm. her and to just have that support, even if people you don't, we don't know each other, Mm -hmm. but just knowing that you went through that same Thing, just that um, that group 
has, is really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish more people would utilize it. I don't know how to, that's your job. You have to figure <laughs> out. I mean, I I'll try and help. I mean, and word of mouth is important. It mm -hmm. really is because even with churches and stuff like that, just um, when people start to know that this person has that connection mm -hmm. to the shelter, because that's what they're all calling it, they'll come. And so that helps with the spreading the word too. So that really has helped too. Yeah. So. One of the things that I just kind of want to reiterate is this, just reminding others that you don't have to leave your partner to get our services. Um, you don't have to have just had the police out at your house the night before. That really we are we are here for, for anybody that, that has been victimized by um, this crime. Um, so that's that's kind of one thing that I want to put out there. The other piece that um, we've been doing a lot of uh, work around and having a lot of conversations about with regards to the types of violence used against women, we are learning um, that strangulation uh, is very, very common in the women that we are working with. Mm. Uh, we just, um, probably over a year ago, just started asking the specific question. No, it was longer than a year ago just started asking the specific question to our callers. Has he ever strangled you? We didn't know what we would find, but we knew enough to know um, the ramifications of strangulation and what it indicates. So in asking that question, we, we waited about a year, went back and took, took a look at our data, and it was between 73 and 77% of our callers said yes. Um, oh. So when we are looking at and talking about domestic violence um, and all the things that it entails, we need to be, and this is a, a collective we, but we need to be very intentional, intentional about specifically the strangulation piece. The, medical, the potential medical outcomes of strangulation, um, the, if, if it's a repeated strangulation, if that is his MO, what we know through research is that that person is 750 times more likely to die at the hands of the strangler uh, by use of guns. So asking mm. if people have weapons are very important. Um, we also know that those people that strangle have no regard for law enforcement and authority. So to our law enforcement partners, when we have that information, we, we know that that person is much more likely to use uh, a weapon when law enforcement responds. So again, I'm really, uh, <laughs> my school of hope, I'm really <laughs> excited. <laughs> I'm really excited about the opportunities that are ahead of us because we have so many service providers that are on the same page. You know, we're all mm. just kind of working towards, okay, we know this now, what do we do next and what does it mean? Um, but those are kind of the things that, uh, until we knew to ask about strangulation, I had no idea to treat it as a separate incident. Sure. Um, but looking at it as a separate incident is incredibly important. But yes, with strangulation, sometimes we will have survivors who say he choked me um, and or tell other people he choked me, which which we understand the terminology. Um, but choking is something that happens on the inside from uh, food. Um, really what we're talking about is strangulation. So mm -hmm. anytime the blood and oxygen is impeded, um, whether it's two hands, one hand, something around the neck, a chokehold, um, that's the kind of stuff that we are that we're talking about. Um, so there is a difference between choking and strangulation, but if we know somebody is in a relationship and they say choking, we'll take it. We know exactly sure. what it is that, that they're talking about. I want to thank Gina for, for coming in, for, for being willing to, to share her story. Um, I want to thank both Molly and Tara with the Hope United Survivor Network. Um, 
just a lot of, as both of them have mentioned, there's, there's a lot of really good work that's being done there. Um, and obviously it's awful that like, we have to deal with this at all, but it's reassuring to know that those support services are there for people when they need them. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you.